And I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Luke chapter 5. We've been making our way through Luke. And actually, we're going to be or continue looking at the Gospel of Luke in the season of Lent, and we'll be uh, beginning a series next week on uh, gospel neighboring, what it means to be gospel neighbors. Uh, but this morning, we, uh, we look one more time at the person of Jesus and his ministry as presented in Luke. And uh, so we'll look at Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 17 this morning. Luke 5, 17, that's page 1598. 1598 in your pew Bibles. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, in Jesus Christ, there used to be an old bumper sticker that... uh, you would see around quite often. I don't know if it's out there anymore. Uh, But it boldly proclaimed, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my co-pilot. Now, when I was young, I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Yay, driver, you've got the best co-pilot there could be in the world, right? Now, when I hear that phrase, my first thought is, why is he the co-pilot? Um... Why is he sitting in the seat over from the person who has all the controls? Um, Why is he the co-pilot? I've always heard that the co-pilot doesn't do much. Co-pilot is just sort of there for looks. You may want to confirm that with Jim Kostelik sometime. Um, Don't tell him I said anything, though. But planes may not be the best illustration here because, as I understand it, computers pretty much fly the planes today. So think about a car instead and think about maybe, oh, your teenage son or daughter who just got their learner's permit. 
When you're in kind of that, that kind of situation, most of us are perfectly fine having our son or daughter in the co-pilot seat, right? They kind of go along with whatever we do and they maybe point out there's a Starbucks coming up at the next corner, that kind of thing. We're comfortable with that. But are you just as comfortable when your son or daughter gets into the driver's seat and you're in the co-pilot seat and all of a sudden they're the ones who are in complete control? They're choosing the destination, they're choosing the route, they're the ones with their foot on the accelerator, maybe more so than the brake. Most of us are comfortable living with a co-pilot, not so much when they take over the real seat, the real chair. And I just want to ask you that question this morning. How do you feel about Jesus? Are you comfortable with him in the co-pilot seat? Are you just as comfortable if he were to navigate over to the the real seat, to the pilot's chair? Ultimately, that's what our text is about today. Who's in the pilot's seat? Does Jesus have any right to be there? We're going to look at three things this morning. First is the pilot's self-authentication. And then we're going to look at Jesus or the pilot's definition of Christian faith. And finally, we're going to look at the pilot's people. And so let's, let's get started with Jesus' self-authentication. Um, details go by pretty fast when we read a text here on, on Sunday morning. So if you have your Bibles open, if you look at verse 17 once again, Luke sort of sets the context for us there. And it says that Jesus was teaching, and in the audience, okay, were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from all the villages around in Galilee, but also from Judea and Jerusalem. And what that means is that the Pharisees had come all the way from corporate headquarters, okay? They were coming to check out Jesus. See, Jesus was gaining a reputation through all of his preaching and healing. He was attracting crowds to the point that the bigwigs in Jerusalem thought, someone's got to go and check this guy out. Someone's got to go and hear what he's saying. And the purpose would be to listen to Jesus a while, observe what he's doing, give him the thumbs up or, or the thumbs down. We understand this kind of thing, right? Let's say there's a Taco Bell in your corner and it's doing incredible business. There are long lines in the drive through all night long. They're constantly doing different kinds of promotions that have people, our crowds uh, surrounding the place all the time. Sooner or later, corporate headquarters is going to hear about those kinds of things from your neighbors. They're going to send someone to check it out. Is this all legit? Right? Are they adhering to corporate policy? Is this, <clears throat> is this a positive thing or a negative thing for the brand? They want to come and get the story. And that's exactly what's going on here with Jesus. The temple has sent the bigwigs to either give or withhold their authorization for what Jesus is doing in the name of God. And as it turns out, they get more than they bargain for. Not only do they hear Jesus teaching, maybe you know, witness a few miracles here and there, but they hear Jesus actually forgive a man of his sins. Your sins are forgiven. Now, 
they knew, quite frankly, that that was something Jesus was not authorized to do. Okay? I mean, we know this because there were actually people who were authorized to forgive sins, right? They were the priests, or more so the high priest. And there were, there were rituals involved with this kind of thing. You didn't, just, you didn't just forgive someone their sins. There were sacrifices of atonement that needed to be made. There was the day of atonement, right? With laying of hands on of goats and sending them into the wilderness and all of those kinds of rituals and cults. All of that was necessary before the priest could say, your sins are forgiven. In other words, the normal way for sins to be forgiven was through the temple and through the sacrificial system that took place there. That system had been authorized by God. And so you can see the mental report that the Pharisees are already formulating in their heads that Jesus is stepping beyond his pay grade here. Jesus is committing blasphemy. He was claiming to do things that only God could give the authorization to do. And so what we have to recognize is that it's exactly to this point that Jesus speaks here. It's to the question of authorization. Who is authorized to forgive sins? And so Jesus comes and he asks the question, all right, which is easier? Which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk? Now, I'd like us to notice just two things here, okay? The first is very brief, and that is that Jesus hasn't yet healed anybody. He hasn't yet healed the man. So far, all he's done is told the man that his sins are forgiven. That's the issue, okay? That's the heart of the matter. The healing is sort of secondary. The heart of the matter is who is authorized to forgive sins, the second thing I'd like you to notice here is how Jesus phrases the question, all right? He does not ask which of these things is easier to do. He doesn't ask which is easier to do. He asks which is easier to say. And it's important not to get those two things confused. Jesus doesn't ask, look, is it easier to forgive someone's sins or to have them stand up and walk, to heal their paralysis? What he asks is, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, get up and walk, or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? And the answer, I think, and I hope you'll all agree to this, is that it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? It's unverifiable. Right? You can't verify that. Not in any way. For instance, maybe you recall the, uh, maybe you don't, you probably don't, the old film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <clears throat> it was a movie about aliens who invaded the earth and they took over the bodies of, of human beings so you couldn't tell they were aliens. Josh right here could be an alien and we would never know it. 
So the premise is, is basically something happened that is unverifiable. You can't verify it. So you could say Peter's an alien, and there would be no way to test that, no way to really find out the truth. In a way, this is what Jesus is saying. I can tell you your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. But how do we verify that? Now, on the other hand, if you tell someone to stand up and walk, that their paralysis is healed, that's verifiable, right? It's either going to happen or it's not. It's true or it's not. Jesus is asking the Pharisees, what's easier to say? If I say your sins are forgiven, there's no way to tell. If I say get up and walk and the person doesn't, you know I'm a fraud. So what does Jesus do? He looks at the Pharisees and everyone else and he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the man, get up and walk. Take your mat and go home. And he does. He heals the man. You see, Jesus has said the harder thing. And he has done it. And therefore, the healing becomes the verification that Jesus can also forgive sins. It's the verification that he has the authority to forgive sins as well. He doesn't need the, the authorization of the temple. He gets his authorization directly from God. Directly from God. That's why Luke says in verse 17, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. The power of the Lord, the power of Yahweh, it's by the power of God, the authority of God, that Jesus heals. And therefore, it's by the authority of God that Jesus also forgives sins. This healing, when Jesus heals this man, it's Jesus' self-authorization that he is actually able to forgive sins. He has the authority to do that. And of course, about this, the Pharisees were dead on right. They said, it's only God who can forgive sins. It's only God who can forgive sins. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. I am God. I am God. And I have the authority to forgive your sins. Now, <clears throat> if we begin to see this healing as Jesus' self-authentication... What does that say for us or to us about Christian faith? What is this saying about Christian faith? Now, why I ask is this. What's, what's the common mindset about faith today? It's very popular outside the church. It even creeps inside the church as well. We often hear what? That faith is blind. Right? Faith is blind. We say that people take a leap of faith. Right? It's, it's as, if, as if they're in the dark and, and they, they leap and they have no idea where they're going to land. They just trust that they're going to land safely. 
right? That's, that's sort of the, the definition of faith these days. And in that way, faith is sort of the opposite. It's become the opposite of reason. Therefore, we're often told that faith is for the weak-minded, right? Faith is for people who really can't handle life. And, and they want to believe that there's something more out there than we can see. Or, or people who fear the realities of life, and so they want to create a new reality. They want to create a different option for themselves. We're told that faith is for women and children and soft-minded men. It's for the poor. It's for the oppressed. It's for the disenfranchised. It's for all the people who cannot manage life the way it is, and so what? And so they turn to faith. And that's how Christians are often perceived. They'll believe anything. And, and before we too quickly dismiss that criticism, I think we often, or we have to admit that oftentimes faith can take on that very character. What I mean is this. Have you ever been, you know, watching late night TV and all of a sudden your TV show turns into an infomercial about nonstick pans? And you're watching these fried eggs sort of slide around in a pan like they're ice cubes. And then there's a casserole that's baked on, you know, it's probably been in the oven for weeks. And somebody just takes a, a rag and wipes it right out and there's not a spot on the pan anymore. And you're thinking, wow, I was going to make eggs for breakfast. Wouldn't it be nice to have a pan like that? And it's late at night, right? So your mind is weak, your mind is tired. And all of a sudden, you're getting out the credit card. And you're buying a new set of non-stick pans. Your reason would tell you there is no such thing. This isn't going to turn out well. It's going to turn out like every other pan you've owned. But your heart is telling you, boy, it sure would be nice. It sure would be nice. And so you act on what you wish for. You act on what you want. And you sort of leave reason out of it. Another example. A few weeks ago, I, I received a letter. This was not an email. It was a letter. Okay? It was a letter from a lawyer who happened to have an office in Canada and he told me that somebody by the name of Verhulst had died and didn't have any relatives, but he had a lot of money, okay? And, uh, and said, you know, we're just looking for someone with the same name who can sort of act like they're a relative, and all we want is a mere, I don't know what it was, 10% or something like that. You ever get any notices like that? maybe a phone call that you won the lottery. And all you need to do to collect is give your social security number to just kind of confirm things. We all want to believe things like that, don't we? In fact, I did a Google search for Canada to see if any Verhulst had actually died. I couldn't find the person, by the way. <laughs> but why do you do that? Reason would tell you this is a scam. This is fake. This is a lie. But your heart says, but boy, it sure would be nice not to have to worry about money anymore, right? And friends, we get caught in these traps all the time. 
Why is it that young men and women, or perhaps even preteen boys and girls, why is it that they, these days they will send naked pictures of themselves to their boyfriends or their girlfriends because they've been told this is what you do when you love someone? And your mind says, don't do it. And your parents say, don't ever get involved in things like this. But we do it anyway. Because we want someone to love us. We sort of put reason on reserve. And we do what we wish or what we want. It's usually what we think about faith. Faith is when people want something so badly or fear so badly going without something that they're willing to close their eyes to reason and latch on to a make-believe world. Faith is blind, we say. But I want to ask you something here. Is this the view of faith that Jesus gives us in our text? Is this the view of faith that he gives us? Does he say, hey, I want you to believe me blindly? And he could say that, right? If anyone could, I'm God. You should just believe me. He doesn't say anything like that. What he does say is, look, I I understand I'm asking you to believe something really big, really significant. I'm asking you to believe that I can forgive your sins. That I can heal your relationship with God. But I don't want you to believe that blindly, he says. And so I'm going to offer you proof. And he looks at the paralytic and he says, Get up. Take up your mat and go home. In front of all these people. So they can all see that I am authorized to do what I say. Jesus gives us reason to believe. And further, Jesus also shows us here that he's not just some religious huckster appealing to our weaker instincts by, by giving us everything that we want. If you think about it, Jesus doesn't give this man what he wants at all. He gives him what he needs. I mean, think about how Luke sets up this story. He sets up a story for a healing to take place. It's all about healing, right? The crowd is there. He tells us that the power of the Lord is present to heal. And then this paralytic is is sort of dramatically dropped through the ceiling right into the center of the whole crowd. The scenario is set up big time for a healing. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Nobody asked for that. I think as Christians, we've read this story perhaps so many times, we just, oh yeah, he forgave him his sins. Nobody asked to have their sins forgiven. This is about healing. Jesus does not just give us everything we desire. He's not saying, look, you want healing? I'll give you healing. 
All you have to do is believe. And it would be really nice if you also made a recurring donation of about $200 a month. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say, I can make you rich. All you have to do is join the church. You'll be happy forever. Jesus doesn't say, I can make you popular. You just have to follow this prescription. He doesn't say, I can give you a husband. I can give you a wife. I can give you a happy family. What Jesus says instead is, you know what? You need something that you do not even know that you need. You need forgiveness. You don't even know that you've offended your Father in heaven to the point that you are alienated from Him and on your own you will never overcome that alienation. But I, I can fix that for you. I can give you forgiveness. And by the way, I'll give you proof that I can. Get up and walk. And the proof didn't stop there, did it? If you think about it, the proof did not stop there. Thomas, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Put your hand in my side and know that I am risen. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to Peter and to the twelve and to more than five other brothers at the same time. Believe. I'm standing right in front of you. Come and touch me. Friends, Christian faith is not about wishing. It's not. Christian faith is about believing on very good, solid evidence that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That Jesus is God. And friends, I feel like I have to make a little sidebar here, okay? Just a little sidebar here. Because even as Christians, I think we fall into this idea of of we just need to believe blindly. Whatever it is that comes along, we can just believe without evidence, without proof. Okay? Now, I don't mean to offend anybody this morning. I know that there are some of us here who are vaccinated and some of us who are not vaccinated and things like that. I'm sure you have very good reasons for the decisions you make. But you also hear stories like, well, I'm not vaccinated because I think the government is, is inserting in the vaccination a computer chip so they can control us. And people believe that, and you ask, where is the evidence for that? And that doesn't seem to be an important part. Now, you may think, well, everybody should just be able to do exactly what they want. But friends, as Christians, that is not true. As Christians, Jesus, what would Jesus say to that? What does he say in this text? He says, I can forgive you of your sins, and I will show you good evidence that I can do that. When Christians fall into simply just believing things blindly, how is it then that we can go back to a world and try and tell them that Jesus has been authorized by God to offer his own body as an atoning sacrifice for all of our sins? How can we say that and expect a world to believe us? See, it all ties together. It all ties together. 
If you don't need evidence for how you live your life and how you make your decisions, then as a Christian, the world looks at you and thinks, well, of course they believe in Jesus. Who wouldn't? They believe in anything. And we try to say, no, we have good, solid reason to believe in Jesus. He lived. He's an historical figure. He died and he rose from the dead. Enough of the sidebar. So if we believe that Jesus authenticated himself, and if we believe that this is the kind of faith that Jesus taught us, then the next question is, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to be? What are the pilots people like? And friends, the answer is, the pilots people are people who live with Jesus in the driver's seat. He's doing the guiding. He's calling the shots. In the end, this story isn't just about faith. This story is about faith in Jesus. It's having faith that Jesus is God's authorized representative when it comes to forgiving our sins. But if he is that, then he is God's authorized everything. He's God's authorized teacher. He's God's authorized lawgiver. He's God's authorized hope giver. What this means is this. It's very simple. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, you believe your sins are forgiven. You walk along like a forgiven sinner, not carrying the burdens anymore of what you've done in the past. And if Jesus says, not a hair from your head will fall without the will of your Father in heaven, then we believe that we are precious in the sight of God. And that nothing happens to us without his knowledge or consent. And if Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, then we believe without a doubt that we know our future. And if Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and so go and make disciples of all nations, then we will go. And we will continue to tell the good news, and we will tell it with confidence. And if Jesus says, love your neighbor, and that your neighbor is the last and the least, then we will do all we can to love those neighbors of ours that perhaps we can't even picture in our minds right now. Is Jesus the authorized sin forgiver? Then he is also the authorized Lord of our lives. 
He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He must be the pilot of our lives. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for stooping down to our level. Not just stooping down to become human like us, which, which is incredible to think of, and we, we give you honor and glory for what you did, but you go beyond that. You stoop down to our level of, of skepticism, of, of fear and anxiety and loneliness. You not only make claims, but you back those claims up. You don't expect a blind sort of faith, but you give us good, solid reason to believe, and then you give us your Holy Spirit within us to believe and to move forward, to not get caught in a place of paralysis, but to actually get up and walk and go to our homes and go to our places of business like the people of God, forgiven sinners new creations. Lord Jesus, give us real faith. Give us true faith. This is our prayer in your name. Amen.